Uh, we're in Job, as you well know. We've been in Job for a while. We've been listening to Job and his friends dialogue back and forth. And, and last week we finished uh, the dialogue portion, and now we're on the final statements from Job. We actually went into his first closing argument that was said to his friends, and now we walk into this last one I call a final defense, Job 29 through 31. Everything shifts at 32. 32 is the answer to Job. It begins with Elihu, who is going to pontificate for quite some time uh, on the theology of God and has lots of right things to say, is not reprimanded, uh, lacks heart, but speaks a lot of truth doctrinally. And then I think the pinnacle of the book is you come to the point where God speaks. And so we're moving out of Job and his friends talking. We're going to be hearing a response later and then diving in again to uh, the, the response from God, how he answers Job, and we're going to learn a lot from that. So over the next six or eight weeks, we'll be wrapping up Job. But here we look at his final defense. And as you can see in the reading, uh, he's going to move through quite a bit of emotions again. He's going to have a bit of an attitude issue at times. I mean, in the one we read out of chapter 31, he refers to God as his adversary, as he's done in the past. And so that's that idea of someone who's against uh, or Satan, or Satan would be Satan. So recognize that he's struggling, but, but this is Job's summary points. And so we're seeing a bit of a, of a broad picture of how he feels, and there's great things to learn from this. I put here, we all like to summarize our points, don't we? Uh, we love to have a final push to make our case. We want to make sure people understand us. This is very normal uh, for us to do. And that's exactly what Job is doing in these three chapters. It is his final defense. He is summarizing what he wants to say to God. But I want you to realize he is building from the end of his speech on wisdom that had God talking, right? It said in 28, 28, it said this, and unto man, he said, this is God, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. Well, Job in these three chapters is basically stating his case for how he's lived that verse out. And you see that mostly in 31, but this is the premise. This is the foundation of his argument. And these are two separate speeches. As 28 ends, 29 starts a new speech from Job. But it builds, it connects. That's your connecting point is 2828. And so he is going to show how he's lived it out. This is what I put, how Job closed his defense to God. Last week, we ended on how Job closed his defense to his friends. And this is how Job closed his defense to God. And this is his final look, uh, so to speak. And I put it into three categories. There's a longing look, chapter 29, a lamentful look, which is chapter 30, and then a last look, his final hit, his idea about his integrity and his innocence uh, that he says to God. And we begin with a longing look, chapter 29. And this is going back, uh, I would hate to say to the glory days. These are the former days he's looking back on. And he looks back, though, with a deep longing to what his life was and contained. But he begins, and this is a really important point of what he says, if you can catch this. He begins by prioritizing his fellowship with God. And that's something that to take away. When Job looks back on what he had before all this took place, the number one thing on his mind is his fellowship with God. And that's a takeaway for us. What is the primary thing we're longing for? Because that was what he missed the most. It's not to depreciate or to demean his family or 
life for his children. It just shows you where God was on his radar. And it begins here. Moreover, Job continued his parable and said, Oh, that I were as in months past, as in the days when God preserved me, when his candle shined upon my head, and when by his light I walked through darkness, as I was in the days of my youth, when the secret of God was upon my tabernacle, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were about me. There's a toss out in that phrase for his family. When I washed my steps with butter and the rock poured out rivers of oil. And here he's expressing a longing for God's presence. If you've been walking with us through Job, one of the cries of Job is, where are you, God? Which we're going to see in the lamentful look. God is silent. God doesn't answer me is what he's saying. And so he's going back to when God was there, when he was blessed with God's guidance, as he says, with, with his company. Uh, number 6, 24 through 26 was a a blessing prayed by the priest for the nation of Israel. It says, The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. That's what Job is longing for. So he is crying out for something that the nation of Israel would pray back to the people and say, may God shine on you. May God guide you. May you feel his presence. And Job is saying, I long for that connection with God. I want to be guided by the light of God's closeness. I want his instruction. See, Job is floundering at times because he can't seem to, to get a grip of what even God wants him to do. He feels distant. So he's looking back on the days when he felt so confident of what God wanted him to do. Days of intimate friendship with God. He mentions, I want to be with my kids. What did Job do with his kids? And you think, well, that's a weird phrase tucked into a longing for God. But you go all the way back to chapter 1 and remember what his, his kids would get together and what would Job do afterwards? Sacrifice. And not in secret with them. He would bring them in. He was the one that guided them to God. And so you think about what he's processing as he thinks about his connection to God. He's also thinking about his influence that he had on his children to bring them to God, to to make their relationship or help them walk the journey of having a relationship with God. And he misses that. He goes on, he misses days when there was plenty and he had all the necessary resources. But that's not what Job has. As we've noted before, how has Job described his time now? Well, he looks at God's watchful eye now as being hostile and unforgiving. Yet his longing glance begins with this idea of, I miss my relationship with God. I miss the opportunity to guide my kids in their relationship with God. And then he moves on in his longing, and he, has, he longs for his fellowship with God, and then he longs with the favor with man. And, and don't take this the wrong way. We oftentimes talk about not seeking favor with man, and that's not to be viewed in a negative connotation for Job. He's going back to where he had influence in society. Uh, he was revered, but he was revered because he was a very helpful to his community. His longing ultimately centers on how he could help others. So Job is not, and sometimes people see and read Job and they say, well, Job's being selfish. Job is not a selfish person. And so even his longing for favor with men is, again, that idea of influence that he was talking about with his children is also influence with others. Um, he begins there, When I went out to the gate through the city, when I prepared my seat in the street, the young men saw me and hid themselves, and the aged arose and stood up. The princes refrained talking and laid their hand on their mouth. The nobles held their peace, and their tongue cleaved to the roof of their mouth." 
Here is the scenario. When Job walks into the city square, this is where business is conducted. When he sat down in the place that he's supposed to sit down in. So remove from your mind coerced following. Because we immediately think, oh, that's nice. Rich man made everyone bow down to him. Rich man wanted everyone to stop talking when he showed up. Remove coerced. That's not what's taking place. Job has a place in the city square. He walks in. When he sits down, everything stopped from young men to elders to the people of influence, that's princes, and the nobility. They all kept quiet. They were unable to speak. That's why your tongue cleaves to the roof of your mouth. You can't speak. Because Job was a great man. And here's the critical thing. They rejoiced in having the privilege of hearing him. When Job comes into the city square, not with pomp and circumstance, not like we do politics today, not how kings would come in and if you talked, you got your head lopped off or your hand lopped off or someone whipped you or beat you, you got to pay more taxes. It's not in that context. Job walked into the city square and everyone stopped talking because you didn't want to waste time talking because what you heard from Job was ultimately going to be a blessing in your life. This is not an arrogance this was how, and I, I want you to, to feel the weight of who he was. You got to go all the way back to Job 1 to understand the context. This is a man after God's own heart. This is a man who was blameless, who has been blessed by God, but also has worshiped God and, and would almost epitomize wisdom in this community. When Job is the wisest and greatest of all the men of the East, it's saying there is no one bigger, smarter, better than Job. It is, in essence, in your mind, it is the Solomon of this generation, except without all the sin that Solomon had. So this is massive wisdom. Why, why did they stop? Why was that? When the ear heard me, then it blessed me. And when the eye saw me, it gave witness to me, because I delivered the poor that cried, and the fatherless, and him that had none to help him. The blessing of him that was ready to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My judgment was as a robe and a diadem. I was eyes to the blind. And hear the poetry here. This is how much he helped a community. Because we, we can relate to this. If someone's blind and someone helps them see, that is miraculous. That's drastic. Now imagine that illustration applied to a community. So the community without Job functions as a blind community and he gives sight to him. You see how much blessing he brings to his community and think tangible. And he's going to talk a little bit about that. And feet was I to the lame. I was a father to the poor and the cause which I knew not. I searched out and I break the jaws of the wicked and pluck the spool out of his teeth. And so you start seeing a little bit what happens when you live in Job's community. You suddenly realize how protected you are, how much of a bubble his wisdom has created. Now do you see a little bit the context of why his friends look at wickedness a certain way? Job is this wise that his advice leads to what would appear to be a very righteous society. He's that influential. And so sadly, when the suffering comes in, it almost is turned on him in an ugly way. But what you have here is when Job acted or decided, the people approved because what he did was a help and a blessing to the community. People who were destitute were helped personally, and that's a really important word, personally by Job. He diligently sought to find out what was wrong. This is why you know he's not arrogant when he says, the cause which I knew not, I searched out. So he's smarter than anyone else. Have you ever met someone who's smarter than anyone else? 
and don't look at yourself. That's terrible, right? right? That person usually comes with a little pocket of what? Arrogance. And then if they make a mistake, well, well they can't make a mistake, right? Because they're smarter than everyone else. That's their problem. Here you see Job walking in and he admits to the fact that if he doesn't know something, he'll make sure to know it. He doesn't assume anything for himself in this scenario. So if he doesn't understand it at first, he's going to make things right. On top of that, Job acted against the wicked. What we see painted for us is a very just man. He longs to be a blessing to those around him, to be someone God used to help others. He then shared how he thought his life would go. I thought, he said, I shall die in my nest and I shall multiply my days as the sand. My root was spread out by the waters and the dew lay all night upon my branch. My glory was fresh in me and my bow was renewed in my hand. He expected to die at home, surrounded by a stable and loving family. Job never intended on burying his children. He expected his children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren to be at his bedside when he drifted off into the night or day. He was not expecting this crushing suffering to take place. His end would come when he had lived a full life, seen many birthdays. Notice he doesn't say, I want to be old. He says, I want to live a lot of days. Um, in the fullness of health. That's the idea of my bow was renewed in my hand. In other words, I don't want to be a feeble old man that somebody needs to wheel around. I want to kind of die still able to do everything. It's the Moses scenario. When Moses died, he was at full vigor. He, he hadn't lost anything. 120 years, he was on the mountain. He's died and God buries him. Why? For his sin, he wasn't allowed to enter the promised land. But it says in scripture that he had not lost anything. He wasn't a 120-year-old man that could barely move. He was a 120-year-old man in full vitality, capabilities. Job is asking for that. That's his expectation. He closes his longing look, returning to his work in society. Unto me, men gave ear and waited and kept silence at my counsel. After my words, they spake not again, and my speech dropped upon them. Like a gift is what he's saying. And they waited for me as for the rain and they opened their mouth wide as for the latter rain. And so you're starting to get a feel. And again, you have to remove from your mind arrogance and coercion. They waited for Job's instruction because it was literally manna from heaven to them. If I laughed on them, they believed it not. And that word is actually smiled. So when I, when I bestowed on them, and we're going to get to this idea of individuality, they almost couldn't believe their fortune, right? It's like you're going to meet the person you've wanted to meet all your, your life. And, and this, this famous person that you've, you've, when I say idolized, but you've looked up to, and then you get a chance to meet that person and they take time with you personally. You can't even believe you've had this opportunity. That is the context. And the light of my countenance, they cast not down. I chose out their way and sat chief and dwelt as a king in the army as one that comforteth the mourners. And so you start seeing his function. He leads their military. He sets their strategy. And then he also deals with their losses. Job is remarking that he talked. When he talked, people listened. Why? Because what he said helped. It worked. It blessed. When Job smiled, it was valued because Job was sincere and his smile was one of kindness and favor. He noticed individuals. He noticed people. What do politicians do when they make a speech and they hold a baby? What are they trying to portray to everyone? I see people. Do they see people? Absolutely not. They see power. 
They see manipulation. What Job is sharing is that that's not who he was. As he's sending there, this famous man, this great man, people are blown away if they have a chance for him to put his attentions on them. But he put his attentions on them because he cared about them individually. He empathized with their specific circumstances. He's not just giving general advice. It's a man that's diving into individual lives. He was a ruler of his area, a great ruler that brought wisdom and comfort. He brought protection. He set it up so they didn't face the problems that he actually faced. What can we take away from Job's longing look? First and foremost, and and if you're going to miss a lot, don't miss this. Prioritize your relationship with your Savior. Job looked longly back at close fellowship and communion. As a believer, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We have this relationship at our fingertips. What do we do with it? We spurn it or devalue it. It's seen as a crippling force on our enjoyment versus this unbelievable opportunity that God has given to his children now. In the church age, wake up to the immense blessing of the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. Wake up to the need and blessing of close communion with your Lord and Savior. Second, I put here after the first, second, make a point to be a blessing to others. Make that a priority instead of your own growth and gain. To whom much has been given, much will be required. Job could walk into that statement and not bow his head and not look on the ground. What happens when we're given much? We think we're smart. We think we deserve it. We think we earned it. And boy, it's easy to get there, right? Notice that Job never once emphasizes even his ability. He's been given so much. And what does he do with what he's been given? And look, this is not a message on socialism. I'm about as anti-socialism as you can get. This is a message about taking how God has blessed you and seeing how you can bless the community you've been placed in. And by the way, you've been placed in a community here in Culpeper at City Light Baptist Church. And so that blessing spreads out from there as God has blessed you. Job had been given great wisdom and wealth, and he used that to bless others and point to his God. Job constantly used what God had been given for God's glory and the benefit of God's people. Can the same be said of us? Chapter 29 is a look, as one writer notes, of life under the smile of God, but that is not Job's current perspective. He feels instead that he's under the wrath of God, and so he moves now in his defense from a longing look to what I've called a lamentful look. This is chapter 30. When we turn now and see the script has flipped Instead of honor, Job is the most mocked of all, mocked by the worst in society. And don't miss the movement. We look at chapter 29. Now we move to chapter 30 and we have this break. Realize that we just wrapped up with people not talking because if you hear Job talk, whatever word he spits out is the word of the day that you need. If you're looking for the word of the day, you've got it. And so he, he flips it now. This is my longing. This is what I had. And now he flips to what reality is in 30. So the movement is very drastic. But now, but now they that are younger than I have me in derision, whose fathers I would have disdained to have set with the dogs of my flock. Yea, where too might the strength 
of their hand profit me, in whom old age was perished. In other words, these are just the, the scourge of society. For want and famine, they were solitary, fleeing into the wilderness, in former time desolate and waste, who cut up mallows by the bushes and juniper roots for their meat. In other words, these people had nothing. They were driven forth from among men. That tells you their character. They, they cried after them as after a thief. These are not talking about poor people. It's talking about wicked people is what he's saying. Wicked people are mocking me. To dwell in the cliffs of the valley, in caves of the earth and in the rocks. Among the bushes they brayed. Under the nettles they were gathered together. They were children of fools, yea, children of base men. They were viler than the earth. That's a pretty negative statement about somebody. Job says, I'm mocked by people whose fathers I would not have trusted to watch the dogs. And by the way, right away, everyone's like, oh, I'd love to watch the dogs. No, not in this time. Dogs were not valued, even though they were used in the flock. So why would he need someone to watch the dogs? So they would still use dogs to work their cattle. But dogs are not how we see dogs today. They were still this, this horrible animal. So I'm not going to even put you over the dogs and remember, fathers to sons, it's a, it's a connotation of respecting your elders. It's hard to almost teach into our culture because we have such disrespect or disregard for those older than us or the generation before us. In that society, even the wicked people understood the idea of respect of your elders and that transition. So when he says that, I wouldn't even put your dad over my dogs. He's really saying you are the, the basis of base. These People who mock me, Job says, I've never saw any benefit in these people. Now, again, don't read this wrong. They were the rabble of society, wasting their time and resources. They were thieves and a scourge, causing problems and probably barely getting by. And again, not because of unfortunate circumstances. They were barely getting by because they were wicked people. They were living this way because of their character. People who have chosen wickedness instead of right. They were the worst of the worst, base and perverse people who embrace wrong. That's they were viler than the earth. These are the mass murderers. These are the people on death row. These are the people who destroy society. And they were the ones mocking Job. He's their punchline. He goes on. And now am I their song? Yea, I am their byword. They abhor me. They flee far from me and spare not to spit in my face. In other words, they go out of their way to spit in my face because he hath loosed my cord and afflicted me. That's the first accusation against God. God has opened up this for me and made this possible. They have also let loose the bridle before me. What would have held them back, right? What does a bridle do? It keeps them contained. They have nothing to stop them now. They would have never dared to even get close to Job before. Now they're spitting in his face on purpose. Upon my right hand rise the youth that's against my strength. On the right hand is his strong hand, so to speak. Um, they push away my feet and they raise up against me the ways of their destruction. And we're going to see a little bit what Job has been facing. It's not just been silence and not isolation. They mar my path. They set forward my calamity. They have no helper. They came upon me as a wide breaking in of waters. In the desolation, they rolled themselves upon me. Terrors are turned upon me. They pursue my soul as the wind, and my welfare passeth away as a cloud. Job's their joke. They despise him, spit on him, keep their distance. He's not one of them, mind you, but instead become the one they attack. This is possible because as Job sees it, God has brought him low. God has brought him down to this. The rabble come at Job's former strength. They set up traps for him. They besiege him. They're constantly coming at Job. As one writer notes, they relish 
tormenting Job. And I want you to pause for a second and realize something. We had Job, who was the wealthiest, greatest man in this community, with kids' houses all over to get blown down and die. He has more wealth than we can imagine. Then we find him living on an ash heap outside the city because no one wants him in town because he's a disease-ridden, and who knows what he's going to pass on. Now, on top of that, we're learning something about what he's been facing. See, people are preventing people from even helping Job. They're, They're after Job. What do wicked people do when they see the downfall of someone who was great and not even in sin, just in, in, in circumstances? They're after him like crazy. <laughs> and you're starting to realize not only has Job faced silence, but he's faced an agony of being attacked constantly. Active prevention of help coming to him. You also recognize it was a bit of a job for the three friends to get to Job. Now, I'm assuming they have soldiers and servants and things at their beck and call so they can get to them. But you see why the isolation is taking place. There is actually an active force that we see now in 30 that was preventing help from even getting to Job. It might explain, and this is conjecture, so I want to make sure I say that. It might explain why it was so hard for his wife to get out to see him if people were attacking those who would come out, if they were setting traps, if they were preventing people from getting there. Job is overcome in terror. You can imagine so by yourself. You can't sleep because you're in so much pain. You can't sleep because people are going to come attack you. (laughs) Constantly chased and dignity gone like a cloud. He moves now from the isolation attack of society to the silence he feels God has given him. And now my soul is poured out upon me. The days of affliction have taken hold upon me. My bones are pierced in me in the night season and my sinews have no rest. By the great force of my disease is my garment changed. It bindeth me about as the collar of my coat. We'll talk about that. I'm being choked in my clothes is what he's basically saying. He hath cast me into the mire and I am become like dust and ashes. And he is speaking of God. I cry unto thee and thou dost not hear me. I stand up and thou regardest me not. Thou art become cruel to me. With thy strong hand thou opposest thyself against me. Thou liftest up me up to the wind. Thou causest me to ride upon it. And not in a fun carnival ride. This is not what you want. And dissolvest my substance. For I know that thou wilt bring me to death into the house appointed for all living. Now he speaks to how long he suffered. Days of affliction that go into the night season. That's telling you this has not been a three week stint. This has been a long time. There is A lot of silence is what he's saying. There's a lot of affliction. He has no rest. He's completely drained and even seems to be choked by his own clothing. Squeezing the life out of him is what he's trying to show you. Even my clothes are ringing. Clothes are a protection. So you'd have clothes on to keep you warm, obviously to cover you up. And he's saying that protection is just manipulated in a way that it's draining the life out of me. He's thrown into the mud as valuable as dust and ashes. So he says to God, I'm dirt to you. He says, I've cried to you, God, but you don't hear me. I stand up, but you don't take notice. It's like asking someone to raise their hand and then you'll call on them, but you look at a kid and you say, I'm never going to call on that kid. He can raise his hand forever. That's what Job is saying. I've had my hand raised this whole time. You don't see me. You don't notice me. You don't look at me. I'm here. I'm in the class. You answer. You're calling on everyone else. Why aren't you calling on me? My hand is raised. You don't look. You're acting cruel and coming after me. See, God is seen coming down on Job, putting him on the wind and battering about. And then Job, and this is somewhat sarcastically, says he knows that God will transport him to death. In other words, your wind is taking me and hopefully to die. Job is crying out because he feels his prayer is unanswered. 
And then he turns now to bemoan the misery of injustice that, that plagues him. Howbeit he will not stretch out his hand to the grave, though they cry in his destruction. Did not I weep for him that was in trouble, he says to God? Didn't I, didn't I cry for someone who was in trouble? Was not my soul grieved for the poor? When I looked for good, then evil came unto me. And when I waited for light, there came darkness. And this is a quintessential thing. I didn't oppress the poor. I didn't oppress people that had need. I helped them, God. Why aren't you helping me? He says to God, you're not treating me like I treated others. He thought God would extend a hand to him when he cried, like he did. But when he thought good was coming, what did he get? Evil. I lose all my wealth. I lose my house. My wife says, curse God and die. My kids are all dead. I'm on an ash heap. And on top of that, wicked people come out. They berate me all day long, spit on me, attack my strength. You could assume there's a physical component that's coming in here. When I thought God would reach down and give me a hand up, I got more evil. My bowels boiled and rested not. The days of affliction prevented me. I went mourning without the sun. I stood up and I cried in the congregation. I am a brother to dragons, which would be another word for jackals, and a companion to owls. My skin is black upon me and my bones are burned with heat. My harp also is torn or turned to mourning and my organ is the voice of them that weep. Job says, I'm all worked up inside. I can't get any rest due to my circumstances. He's cried constantly and is the companion of jackals and owls. And you think about owls in the night, there's a loneliness that he's trying to depict here. Jackals are roaming around. He's, he's trying to show you a picture of how he feels. His skin is racked by disease. That's what he talks about being blackened, but not by the sun. I'm, I'm just, my, my skin is, is tortured and, and ripped apart. And, and, and in your mind, what happens when you throw a piece of meat in the fire and it burns for a long time? Then touch that texture. He wants you to see texture here. It's, it's crusted over. It is fried. His body is burning with fever. That's the whole bones burning, right? So his skin has been charred, cracking and boils. His bowels, which speak to the, the, the central organs, are just boiling over. So think about massive discomfort there. Fever racking him. His only song is one of misery and pain. There's a lot we learn from Job's lamentful look. One thing we can notice, and I want you to see this. You, you look at Job and for a second shift your mind to the cross and recognize that he pictures what's coming for Christ, who is the ultimate example of unjust suffering. Job personifies that for us. As Ash notes, in his indignity, he foreshadows one who will be cursed and mocked by a violent robber under capital punishment. Remember that. He sits on the cross. What does one of the thieves say to him? Curses him. This is an insurrectionist who is actually dying for what they accused Christ of. Don't miss that. In Scripture, it says robbers. These weren't some petty thieves that had walked into the house and stole a lamp from somebody. These were people who were trying to raise an army against Rome. What Jesus was accused of, he sits in the middle of two people who actually did that. He's taking the place of Barabbas, who was an insurrectionist, who should have been on that cross, and he sits in the middle. That's unjust suffering. But we also see someone broken under the pain of their circumstances and health. We can see something in his lamentful look. 
we can see how seeing is difficult. It's a reminder of what suffering can do and what it does to our mind. As believers, we suffer and it's hard sometimes to make sense of it. I even go back to the singing and music is a wonderful and can be a wonderful help, but I want you to realize what Job was listening to, so to speak. Misery and pain. And I say that because I'm, I'm throwing out a cautionary word as you walk with someone through suffering. Yeah, the song that maybe lifted your spirit doesn't necessarily lift theirs, and that doesn't speak to them being horrible. It speaks to the reality of their circumstances and the weight they're under. Don't be trite. Don't be trivial as you see suffering. Look, as believers, we suffer, and it's hard. I put the word sometimes to make sense of it, and we probably put most times to make sense of it. As one writer notes, ultimately, we shall see that there is a good purpose and a great purpose achieved by these sufferings, but not now and not yet. And that, I think, is the most helpful thing to remember. We know in God's sovereignty and his will and his purpose that he's working all things for our good, but he doesn't say that we're going to know that. Nor does he say that we'll ever realize that or figure that out here on earth. We can know with certainty that he is working good. And you can know with certainty that there'll be a day when you do know why. But you can't go to God and say, but you better tell me April 30th, 2023. Is there an April 30th? Yeah, there is April 30th. I didn't pick February. That would have been a Oh, February 30th. There we go. It will be February 30th. That's where you get it. We know that one. Um, but either way, you, you can't go do that to God because we know it. And see what Job has to get to and we have to get to is understanding the good purpose that God will have for it without telling God, you better tell me what it is. By the way, and, and, and it's lovely to read uh, God's response. He does not tell Job. What he tells Job is about himself. But though Job has looked longingly I put here, it's, it's hard, sorry, it's hard to see in suffering. It's hard to focus on Christ, to see his love and sacrifice. Uh, but we need to fight hard to look toward him to see the cross. I say it again with a cautionary tale, it's hard for a sufferer to see. And so how do you help a sufferer? One, it's coming alongside them, knowing that it's hard to see, and then gently and constantly, but not naggingly, helping them see Christ helping turn their head towards Christ. As we walk with those who are suffering, keep in mind that a lamentful look is part of that journey. We need to be lovingly pointing to the Savior and understanding they will often struggle to see it. So be patient and consistent with those in a battle. And there's the words, walk with them. We tend to point them. Hey, there, go there, go there. That's where you go. You go there. You walk with them. Don't point there, walk there, beside them and at their speed. Job has looked longly at what was and what he hopes will return. And he's looked lamentfully at what life is. And now he closes his defense to God with what is a last look. And if you're looking at chapter 31, what a great verse to understand in the context of how to live your life righteously. There are components in here. This is his, uh, that, that, delve past what we should do when you you shouldn't be going to God and saying you're my adversary and I'd like to wear whatever you're accusing me of on my shoulders I want this to be out in the open let people know what in the world you're doing it's this manipulative call to God but through most of the chapter is Job's battle for his integrity this is 
uh, 28.28 lived out. This is how I've, I've shunned evil. And he shares things that we should be emulating. These are things that we should do. This is a defense of his character, actions, desires, and heart. And we learn things that we should do. Now, it begins and ends with a covenant. So we'll start with that. He says, I made a covenant with mine eyes. These are not the covenants we hear about oftentimes, Davidic covenant, Abrahamic covenant. But it is a covenant. It is a pact. And he says, I made a pact with myself. And he's using an illustration that's going to point to his heart. So he's talking about what he's done or committed for his heart. I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? For what portion of God is there from above and what inheritance of the Almighty from on high is not destruction to the wicked and a strange punishment to the workers of iniquity? Job is saying, I made a covenant with myself using his eyes that encompasses his desires and his affections. And I like to use this word just to help us. It encompasses his daydreams. You want to know what your heart is fixated on? It's what you daydream about. And what he's pointing to is he says, I've made a covenant to be pure of heart. He's speaking to the purity of his heart. He's committed to living a life with a pure heart. How does he illustrate that? By a commitment to not engage in immoral daydreaming and thoughts. So he uses a very common problem to highlight the covenant he's made. And the covenant he's made is to be pure in heart. And so if we're looking for application, you can start out that it'd be very helpful to make a covenant with yourself to be pure of heart. That's what he's saying. I, it's beyond just what I look at. People fixate on the, the outward, the look. He's saying, I'm changing my desires. And the word there is good that I will not think upon a maiden. I will not engage in this thought. And his idea is that I'm going to be pure in heart. He goes on, doth not he see my ways and count all my steps? I have walked with vanity, or if my foot hath hasted to deceit. Let me be weighed in an even balance that God may know mine integrity. So you know the point of what he's trying to say. We're going to see a covenantal start. We'll see a covenantal end where he calls almost a curse on the land if he doesn't live a certain way. And in between, we're going to see a list of sins that he's going to illustrate there. But he's saying, not only have I made a covenant to be pure of heart, he sets that covenant before God. And I want you to recognize what he's saying the covenant he made with himself is not saying that he is the standard. He's now telling you who the standard is. So he made a covenant to be pure of heart, and he says God is the judge of that purity. I'm not the standard nor the judge of that purity. God will be the judge of that. He says, I'm an open book. I'm available for investigation. And he wants to show that he has a clear conscience. Now, what follows are 10 sins listed, and yes, uh, there's some people that break them into 14 sins. Some people break them into 28 sins. It just it goes on and on. We're going with the 10, good number, easy to remember, so we'll dive in. But I just want to say up front, you can break them into smaller categories or maybe lump them into even bigger categories and go less than 10. These sins, though, are not comprehensive. This isn't chapter 31, avoid these sins and you're going to live a perfect life. It is illustrative of how Job has lived with integrity. Seven and eight, if my step hath turned out of the way and mine heart walked after mine eyes, and if any blood hath cleaved to mine hands, then let me sow and let another eat. Yea, let me, my offspring be rooted out. So after coveting to have a pure heart, he now talks about if his heart shifted toward a disposition of sin. So he starts off with a very general look at sin. He says, if I am disposed or predisposed or my bent in life is sin, he says, and away from the right, he says, if I've gone in the wrong direction, if my heart became set on that new path, 
If I've acted in a wrong way, then let me sow and not reap. And he's not talking about sinless living because he's never said he's sinless. He's saying when a stain cleaves to your hand, it's like saying you have dirty hands and you don't care. You're just going to be dirty. That's the idea. It's a commitment to a new way. And that's what the poetry is trying to say. And it's in other words, it's a disposition towards sin. And he says, then let all I have be taken away by natural disaster, war, or some type of calamity. He now moves into more specific realm and he goes to the idea of adultery, the desire of which was used to illustrate his purity of heart. If mine eye have been deceived by a woman, and, and don't read that wrong, because the word deceived is enticed, pulled in, because it's real easy then to say, well, it's the lady's fault. No, he's saying, if I've been enticed by a woman or if I've laid wait at my neighbor's door to let my wife grind unto another and let others bow down upon her, he says this, for this is a heinous crime. Yea, it is an iniquity to be punished by the judges. For it is a fire that consumeth to destruction and will root out all mine increase. And he does teach us about sin as well. If Job says I've engaged in an affair, if I plotted immorality, then he says he deserves the same to be done to him. And he goes beyond. It's an offense worthy of punishment, both in the courts and beyond. And he does help us. He starts with a sin that he says is so serious. Think of fire that consumeth. What does fire do? When you light a match and you don't put it out, it burns everything. It doesn't stop. And so what Job is trying to illustrate is that this sin is horribly wicked, but it also is vastly destructive. It always burns beyond what you think it will burn. And I put it's a warning that we should take seriously. He goes on from that to treating his servants justly. If I did despise the cause of my manservant or of my maidservant, when they contended with me, what then shall I do when God riseth up? And when he visiteth, what shall I answer him? Did not he that made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? Job says, if I've acted incorrectly toward a servant because I have power and they don't, how could I even answer God? And he recognizes something. I'm human and they're human. As one writer notes, he says, we share a common humanity and a common answerability to God. Job has avoided injustice, but also arrogance in seeing himself higher and more valuable than others in God's eyes. By the way, this commitment answers the charge of our day. It explains to believers how we are to live. Galatians 3.28 made it crystal clear. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Job has said, I've lived out a New Testament principle. Though I am the greatest person in the known community, yet if my servant has a request to me, I don't take my position as elevating me above them. I recognize that we are equal in God's eyes. Scripture has been clear about this from the beginning all the way through. Job has lived that out biblically. Now he moves to look and how he's used his abundance in the care of the poor. And recognize this. He talked about how he's used it to help. And we talk about with, when you've been entrusted with much, you also have a responsibility. You see how Job in the chapter on sin is now saying how he uses God's resources that have been given to him. He sees that as a, a weight that it's not just that, oh, you choose to live more Christian than the other person or be more generous. Job sees it as if you don't use your resources for, for God's 
benefit and the benefit of his children, that it is a sin, that it, it is, it's a wrong that you're committing. If I have withheld the poor from their desire, have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or have eaten my morsel myself alone, and the fatherless has not eaten thereof. In other words, if I'm pigging out and other people are going without food, and he says, for from my youth he was brought up with me as with the father, and I have guided her from my mother's womb. If I have seen any perish for want of clothing or any poor without covering, if his loins have not blessed me, and if he were not warned with the fleece of my sheep. Job says that he's reached out, used his resources. He's used his resources generously to help those less fortunate than himself. Where he was enriched, he saw a responsibility to provide the necessities of life to those lacking them. Again, I'm not preaching on socialism. I'm not preaching on what our world is pushing. They're wrong. It doesn't work, just in case you were wondering. But the fact of the matter is, as believers, we are called to take what God has given us and to be generous with them. This is not a demand the poor made on him. It's something he does out of the generosity as a response as a Christian man. He states that he did not gorge himself while leaving the outside starving. He's provided the basic necessity to those lacking them. He has shown Christian generosity. And I highlighted that in my notes. Hopefully, the same can be said of us. Job moves now from that generosity, which, by the way, if I help someone less fortunate myself or come alongside someone who's struggling because God has entrusted me with resources, so I'm able to do so. Again, I'm not, this person's not demanding that of me. This is the Christian generosity. We see that played out with what Paul does and bringing help to the church in Jerusalem. It's all through the New Testament as you read it. Then that's the positive side. Now Job addresses um, the, the, what I call the negative side of not actively trying to destroy those same people. So he says, if I've lifted up my hand against the fatherless, when I saw my help in the gate, then let mine arm fall from my shoulder blade and mine arm be broken from the bone for destruction from God was a terror to me. And by reason of his hideness, I could not endure. Job says now, let me flip the script. If I have attacked the weakest using his advantage in the courts, then he says, let my arm fall out of the socket. And I can attest to that being painful. Okay, so that hurts. Because um, so, remember, Job, don't forget who he was. If he walked in, everyone was silent. So if Job said, get rid of this person, move this person, take this person's land, that's what happened. People did what he said. So he says, if I've abused what God has entrusted to me, if I've actually used that to take advantage of somebody else, then let my arm fall out of its socket. He says he would not oppress that way because of reverent fear of God and his majesty. Why does he not do that? Go all the way back to how he views people. He views people as people and he views himself as people. And so he realizes that he's no better than someone else. And when you do that, then you realize that you're not going to go oppress and manipulate your advantage because you recognize that the people you're oppressing are people made in the image of God. And so your response is different. They kind of build a little bit on each other. He goes on and speaks to one of the struggles in the United States of materialism, of trusting in wealth. If I've made gold my hope, or I've said to the fine gold, thou art my confidence, and that's, that's, that's blatantly who we are. If you've looked at your bank account and said, I feel good about this because I've got money here, and so I'm good. If I've done that, that's him saying, if I worshiped wealth, if I rejoiced because my wealth was great and because my hand had gotten much, Job is saying he's not put his trust in his material security. 
Though he has prospered, he continued trusting in God alone. And I put as a note, as a prosperous nation, we need to push pause and examine our lives to make sure that he alone is our trust. Look, I don't like losing money in the stock market. I'm sure you don't either. And I recognize that it puts weight on us. But one thing it will do, and we can learn from this, is where is your trust? I've been looking at, you know, you get the monthly statements and you used to enjoy getting them. And now you're like, why am I wasting my money in investing? You know, it's like Dave Ramsey has to go hide in a hole now because no one wants to invest. But it, you look at this, but do you realize when you see that and that disappointment that comes and that sense of desperation, I realize, oh, I've been pretty materialistic because my confidence must have been in something else by the response there. And so when we see this financial burden that comes, and I don't want to make light of it, but I do want us to recognize it can remind us, it can wake us up to what we've been trusting in. Because how easy for material things to slip in and be our confidence without us even noticing it. It's very tricky. If I beheld the sun when it shined or the moon walking in brightness, now he's moving to worshiping other things, and my heart hath been secretly enticed or my mouth hath kissed my hand, this also were an iniquity to be punished by the judge, for I should have denied the God that is above. And I just want you to realize he's talking about idolatry here, which most of the world engages in. And notice that the punishment is right up there, ramped as high as can be. Job continues, he looks at his confidence in God by moving to worship of someone or something other than God. Our world worships themselves. They view themselves as God, and therefore they worship at the altar of self. That is what he's talking about. That's one of the beings that is made. And he goes on, he says, that Job says, saying, I'm not an idolater. I've only had the one true God in my heart and the one who I worship. He then returns to the sins in society and speaks about his enemies and how he has not selfishly been vengeful toward them. This is convicting, isn't it? If I rejoice at the destruction of him that hated me. Job is saying, I don't wish destruction on these punks who are spitting at me and attacking me. I haven't fallen into that or lifted up myself when evil found him. Neither have I suffered my mouth to sin by wishing a curse to his soul. How convicting is that? Job has not turned the downfall of his enemies into a victory for himself. In other words, he has remained loyal to God's kingdom and not his own. So that the men of my tabernacle said not, oh, that we had of his flesh, we cannot be satisfied. The stranger did not lodge in the street, but I opened my doors to the traveler. And now he states that he's been hospitable. That society, hospitality is still that way in, in portions of the world. Hospitality is, is a part of, of social responsibility. And he says, I've not left someone on the outside. No one, even a stranger or foreigner, has ever been left in the street at night. They enjoyed my food and my protection. If I cover my transgressions as Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom, did I fear a great multitude or did the contempt of families terrify me that I kept silence and went not out of the door? And here's somewhat of his close of his list. He began the list with kind of sin in general about being predisposed to sin. And now he goes to, to looking at hiding sin. Job says, I haven't harbored secret sin while pretending to be something I'm not. Which again, we know is true because God said he's blameless. The same on the inside as you are on the outside. And he's saying, I haven't hit anything. I've never let the pressure of society not allow me to take care of my sin, not sacrifice for sin, not confess my sin. And then in cries to God, oh, that one would hear me. Behold, my desires that the Almighty would answer me and that my adversary had written a book. Surely I would take it upon my shoulder and bind it as a crown to me. I would declare unto him the number of my steps. As a prince would I go near unto him. And he says, I want God to give me an audience. He challenges God for that audience. And here you see him 
throwing out an incorrect approach to God, and he'll be addressed for that. He signs off, so to speak, his request to say, I want to be heard. I'll carry the mark. I want to carry vindication on my shoulders. I want to walk around and be identified as innocent and not guilty. That's what he's saying. Now, when God does appear, he also says, I want to be vindicated and approach it as a prince. I want to walk in not as a humble servant, but I want to walk in as a ruler. And then God appears, that arrogant wording and thought of Job is gone, and instead he repents of such thinking. His repentance is for these comments that he makes in these moments, and we've seen that throughout his speeches. We too should be cautious in how arrogantly we tend to speak to the Lord, our King and our Savior. Job closes as he began. This is the covenantal language. If my land cry out against me, or that the furrows likewise thereof complain. If I have eaten the fruit thereof without money, or have caused the owners thereof to lose their life, let thistles grow instead of wheat and cockle instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. And and sometimes people see that as a separate sin, but it, it is covenantal language. If you read through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, one of those has it in there, Deuteronomy. You're going to see the same kind of idea of the land rejecting you if you've rejected what God said. So it's the covenant close. If I've done wrong of any sort, linking back to land and those who farmed it for him, let let that be cursed with thorns instead of wheat and weeds instead of barley. Job here speaks of his overall integrity. Yes, there are portions of this speech which we've noted that are the wrong approach to God. their arrogance and the wrong attitude. But it does speak of his character and how he shuns evil and pursues what is right. He flees from sin, not in a naive way. That's what's great about Job. He's not a bubble. He talks about reality and how he dealt with it. But instead, he's fully aware of its pull, temptation, and thus he takes clear action to resist it. And I put here, can the same be said about our lives and decisions? If you had to defend your integrity to God, could you write chapter 31 about your life? Could you sketch that out? Have we recognized the real pull of sin and taken definitive action and commitment against it? Wrapping up, um, this is all of Job's speech making. Job only repents after this. He speaks very briefly. We're going to have five chapters from Elihu and then some chapters of God speaking. And Job is going to repent. We're going to see his life be changed and, and, and God's going to bless it. But we see him quiet down after this. But we've seen his final defense. No, he doesn't always speak rationally or correctly towards God. He does not always maintain the right attitude before the Almighty. But we do see some things. We see a deep felt desire to please and honor his God the one true God, the one uniquely worthy of praise and worship, the one worthy of our life. So in his last defense, let's examine some things. One, do we find in ourselves the same longing and value for our relationship with God as Job had? Do we prioritize fellowship with God? Two, do we understand the agony of suffering and empathize with Job and then by extension, the body of Christ, his church? How do you react to the sufferer? And are we going to learn from Job's walk and how his friends respond and be different to be his church? Do we stand committed like Job to be against sin and its influence in our lives? No, not a naive position, but instead fully aware of the danger, fully aware of our susceptibility to its temptation and fully committed to resist it. Job may have missed the mark at times in his attitude and approach, but he gives a clear look in his final defense at some critical things. What we should long for, how we should perceive suffering, and lastly, the need to be committed to the fight against sin, actively pursuing victory, not ignorantly or 
passively. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time we have to gather together to study your word, to walk through Job's last statements as he looks back on his life longingly and we see that his primary desire was his relationship with you. Convict our hearts to have the same priority, to look longingly for our relationship, to seek it knowing that it's there. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but we devalue that, we shun it, we ignore his prodding and his conviction in our lives. Change our longing. Help us understand the weight that sin plays in our life, to not be naive about it, but to be conscious of that, but also be conscious that we want to serve you, to live for you, that the standard is you and not ourselves or our world. Help us to resist sin as Job did and to live for your glory and for your honor. In your precious and holy name, amen.